And as you're being seated this morning, would you please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. So we're in the midst of a series on the book of Revelation, and we've just come through the section where John was commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus to write seven letters to seven churches, describing the, the state of the church, the struggles of the church, the encouragement that the church needed, the correction that the church needed. And now there comes kind of a, a shift in the storyline of the book of Revelation, where John um, transitions from the island of Patmos and writing these letters into the heavenly throne room of God. So what we're going to do for the next four weeks is take our time with Revelation 4 and 5. These are kind of two of the highest mountain peaks in the whole storyline of the Bible. These are important sections in Scripture. So we're we're going to look at them in depth and in detail and hopefully kind of soak every spiritual nutrient we can from them, although we won't even get close. So hear the word of the Lord from Revelation 4 this morning. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing on the preaching and hearing of it. Heavenly Fathers, we come to a majestic and awe-inspiring text like Revelation 4, Lord. We know that we need eyes to see, not just what the words on the page say, but the realities that they point to. Lord, we need your spirit to help renew and cultivate our hearts so that we feel its weightiness and to shape our will so that we live in light of it. So we ask that blessing upon this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Prior to 1946, no human being had ever seen a picture of the earth from the perspective of outer space. The closest that anyone got was uh, when a balloon was set up into space and it got about 13.7 miles of altitude and it captured some images that gave people just a glimpse of the curvature of the earth, what it looked like from there. 
But then on October 24th, 1946, a group of research scientists launched a missile into space that had a 35 millimeter camera strapped to it. And Clyde Holliday is the one who invented this camera that was strapped to this missile. When he processed those photos, he was the first ever human being to see what Earth looked like from this new perspective, this new frontier. Well, eventually, what he saw only in a black and white photo, astronauts got to see with their own two eyes. And one of those astronauts was Neil Armstrong. And here's how he described seeing Earth from this new vantage point. It suddenly struck me that that tiny pea, pretty and blue, was the Earth. I put up my thumb and shut one eye, and my thumb blotted out the planet Earth. I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very, very small. Have you ever seen the movie Apollo 13? You know when someone kind of reminisces that scene because they're reflecting on what Neil Armstrong did. Because it's, it's amazing what you see and how it shapes you and changes you when you see something from a new perspective and a different vantage point that you've never seen from before. When you stand on the shore of the ocean, you watch the waves roll in, you hear their constant roar, and you look out and you see nothing but water as far as the eye can see. The earth seems overwhelmingly massive and you feel small. It's hard to imagine anything bigger than the earth. And then you look at pictures like the ones captured by the International Space Station, which you can go online and look at, beautiful pictures. And what from the shore looks overwhelmingly massive, and there can't be anything bigger than this, looks like a tiny little blue marble that you play with as a kid, and it seems very, very small compared to the vastness of space. Because there are times when you gain a new perspective and a new vantage point, and what looks overwhelming and big comes into its proper perspective. And so sometimes to gain perspective on things, we need to be able to see from a different vantage point. And that's exactly what John does for us in Revelation 4 and 5. So in these chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, it's as if we get to travel with John up into the very throne room of heaven, God's heavenly house, so that we can gain a new perspective on earthly realities. So we can gain a heavenly perspective on the things that are going on all around us in the chaos and the muck of earthly life. Because think about who John's been writing to. The churches that John has been writing to in all the letters we've seen are surrounded by a combative culture, a hostile culture. They're struggling even with their own various internal issues. There's threats that surround them everywhere they look. And for those churches, those problems, those struggles, those temptations at times seem so overwhelmingly massive, you think there's nothing that can overcome these. We can't go around them. We can't go under them. We can't go through them. These, these are huge. And so what are we going to do? But then John brings them into the throne room of God with him. And they're able to see from the vantage point of heaven, which helps us gain a perspective on earthly realities. And it puts them in proper perspective. So that's what we're going to do this morning. See from the perspective of heaven so that we can see things on earth rightly. So look with me at verse 1 as John is invited into this new place, this new reality, this new vantage point, so he can see history, so he can see life from a new perspective. Verse one, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So up until this moment, 
John has been exiled on the island of Patmos as a political prisoner. So he's personally experienced the hostility of the political authorities in his own culture. He's experienced the animosity from the uh, Jewish religious leaders at that time who were kicking believers out of the synagogue. He's seen what a precarious and vulnerable position the church is in. It's frail, it's small, it's fragile. And in these letters, he's just composed. There's problems, there's issues, there's lovelessness, there's lukewarmness, there's compromise with culture, there's acceptance of false teaching. And who could fault him at this point in writing Revelation if he wasn't a bit discouraged and pessimistic about the outlook of the future? I'm sure none of you get discouraged or pessimistic about the future, but, but John was. And now, though, there's an open door and an open invitation to see from a new vantage point, God's heavenly throne room. And before we get into what John sees and how it helps us see better, I want to go on a rabbit trail. And it's a rabbit trail that many have asked me about, so I thought, I'm just going to insert it here. What about the rapture? Now, this might seem random. This might seem interesting. But... Verse 1 in Revelation 4 is often used as a place where people would go to to say, hey, here is a veiled and subtle reference to this idea of a secret rapture. Because according to this view, John represents the church on earth. And as he represents, this call up into heaven by Christ is the summons for the church to leave earth, go into heaven before the seven-year period of tribulation starts, starting in chapter 6. Because there's kind of a chronological view of the book of Revelation that was the, you know, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 was writing to the church then. Then John and Revelation 4 and 5 is the rapture. And then chapter 6 onward is a tribulation. Now, that is a very common view. So Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth was a very popular book. You might have grown up with the Left Behind series. It, that's a book I grew up with. Now, I think the concept of a secret rapture makes for mildly entertaining science fiction. But... In my honest opinion, it does not make for good biblical interpretation. And perhaps maybe you grew up with this view. This is a view I grew up with. And uh, even CNN recently, CNN of all places, wrote an article about rapture anxiety. And they described it as you, you walk into the laundry room and you see clothes on the floor and you think, I've missed it. They're, they're gone. <laughs> they're not here anymore. <laughs> Apparently, this is people something people struggle with. So I, I thought I might help you out with that. So I thought... Now, let me be clear. I believe in the second coming of Christ. Christ is coming back. He's coming back visibly, gloriously, truly. But what about this this other coming, coming 1.5, coming one and a half? Well, let me give you three reasons why I think the view of the rapture should be left behind, okay? Yes. (laughs) My cleverness amazes even me, so. When... The New Testament speaks of the coming of Christ, his return. When Jesus describes it, when the apostles describe it, they speak of it as one singular individual event. They don't speak of it in in two phases, two comings. And so, for example, when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives with the disciples and he's about to leave them, he departs, he ascends into heaven. Well, an angel says this to them. This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go in to heaven. So what the angel is saying is just as the ascension was this one part, visible, physical event, so will the second coming be. It's not going to be this secret thing that you won't, you won't know. You saw him right there with your own eyes. You will see him again. And so if anything, the secret coming of Christ already took place at the incarnation. Think of the incarnation. 
And the nature of that coming for the people who were anticipating it for hundreds and hundreds of years, it was in such an unexpected way that it was overlooked and missed by most people. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity as we sing in one of those Advent hymns. The shepherds had this glorious angelic choir announcing the birth of a king. And when they go, where do they find this king? Not in a castle, but in a manger. What, when they see this king, what do they see? They see a little infant wrapped in swaddling claws, lying in a feeding trough. That was the secret unexpected coming. And the disciples didn't get the secret, even as they were with Jesus for many years. He said, the son of man must suffer. They didn't understand that the throne he was going to sit on in his first coming was going to be a cross, where he would be nailed to it and hung suspended on it with a crown of thorns, not a glorious crown. That was the secret coming. The other one is going to be a glorious one in which his glory is vindicated as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, this leads me to the other reason why I think the view of the secret rapture should be left behind. The New Testament authors speak of the second coming of Christ as a public, visible, unmistakable, glorious event. So they describe it as anything but secret. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4.16. So Paul is writing to the Thessalonians who are wrestling with, did the second coming of Christ already happen? Some of them thought it did, so they quit their jobs, they kind of sold everything. And he's saying, you guys, when it happens, you'll know. And here's what he says. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, I'm no expert on sneak attacks. I'm no expert on secrets. In fact, if you tell me secrets, I will not keep them. <laughs> but if I was going to keep a secret, if I was going to plan a sneak attack, I would not in, it would not involve a cry of command. It would not involve the voice of an archangel or the sound of a trumpet. It would have none of those things. And it wouldn't include those things we used at the boat parade last night either, <laughs> those noisemakers. <laughs> For those of you who are wondering what that is, talk to Mark Racist afterwards. <laughs> it would give away the secret. It's going to be a public, visible, unmistakable event. But you might be thinking, what about those times in the New Testament when Jesus or Paul describes the return of Christ as like a thief coming in the night? How how does that square away with the trumpet and the archangel voice? That sounds kind of secretive. Well, here's how those two relate. So you you have two metaphors in the scriptures. You have the, the cry of a command, the trumpet, and then you have a thief coming in the night. And we have to Worked, how do we reconcile those two things? Well, I, th- I think the thief in the night metaphor tells us that we cannot predict when Christ is coming back. We don't know the day or time or hour when he's coming back, so we must always be ready. The fact of his return is settled. The time of his return, we do not know. You cannot, set, you cannot sync your Google Calendar to it. You cannot sync your watch to it. There's not going to be alert on your iPhone. You know, we had this hurricane so-called hurricane recently, Nicole, and 36 hours before my phone blasts off at 9.56 p.m. saying it's coming. There's there's not going to be that kind of thing for the second coming, okay? Jesus has given it. He said he is coming. And so this tells us, because you don't know the exact hour, hour or time, be alert, stay awake, be ready. But the blasting trumpet metaphor tells us that although we don't know the timing of Jesus' return, it's unpredictable, the event and occasion of his return will be unmistakable. You won't wonder, is that what we were waiting for? 
you will know when it happens that that's what it is that's what is happening so so think of it like fourth of july fireworks i remember as a kid the first time i can be conscious of going to the fireworks show my sister told me that there's always a grand finale at the end of the fireworks show so i was waiting for a grand finale so guess what i did the whole fireworks show when my sister was sitting next to me i asked is, is this a grand finale is this a grand finale well when the grand finale happened guess what i did i was quiet because i knew it was the grand finale the, the amount of fireworks going off at the same time, the colors, the blasts, the sounds, there was no mistaking that that was the grand finale. And so that's how the return of Christ, you don't know when it's going to happen, but when it does, you will not mistake the fact that it has happened. It is going to be a public, visible, glorious event that is known only at a time that the Father has set. Well, while we're down this rabbit trail, let me offer one more reason why I think the secret rapture is not a biblical concept. And this one is a, more of a practical nature. These aren't the most sophisticated academic arguments, but I think they're right. You will search in vain in the New Testament to find that the church is given a tribulation exemption certificate. You will not find one in the New Testament. Being a Christian, being part of the church, does not mean that you receive a get-out-of-tribulation-free card. From a practical standpoint, my great issue with the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture is that it gives believers a false sense of comfort and security. Now, I think the gospel provides us true and ultimate comfort and security. But I literally was having a conversation with someone who was kind of decrying the, the direction that culture is going and, and worried about this and that. And then they said, hey, at least when it gets really bad because of the rapture, I know I won't have to be here to deal with it. And I thought, that is such an unbiblical concept that the rapture is somehow this tribulation insurance premium that you pay for being a christian when in reality the book of revelation was written for quite the opposite reason revelation was written not to give the church some false sense of security and comfort that being a christian is like floating on a lazy river and things are gonna be fine and when they're bad you get out of there instead revelation is written to recalibrate our expectations of life in this world you will have troubles you will have tribulations. You might have been hoping for the lazy river ride, but in some sense, John is writing Revelation to say, you better buckle up your life jacket because there are rapids coming soon and we need to be prepared. So it, it recalibrates our expectations because if we were expecting a pain-free, simple, easy, comfortable life, if you haven't already, you will find that that's a disappointment. Life is grand and great. God is good all the time. His His Beauty and creation shines forth, but at the same time, we do realize we're in a fallen world that is not always um, at peace with the Christian message and the true God. And so Revelation was also written to recalibrate our hope. Our hope should not be in having a certain type of experience in this life that just goes easy and smooth. It should be in God who can sustain us in trials, who can use trials to refine us, to make us into the image of Christ, and who is directing all things towards his inscrutable, mysterious, and yet glorious ends. And when our hope is placed in him and in that, no circumstance can dislodge your hope. That's what Revelation is written to show us. So all of that to say, Revelation 4.1, and for that matter, I don't think any verse in the New Testament teaches a secret rapture. And so if, if you have bought rapture insurance for your pets, I do recommend that you cancel your policy at your earliest convenience. So what is Revelation 4.1 then about? What are we getting into in this scene here? Well, in Revelation 4.1, one, 
John is functioning like a prophet, like the other prophets that have gone before him. One of the roles of a prophet was to receive revelation from God so that he could give it to his people so that they could understand and make sense of what was going on around them from a heavenly divine perspective of the one who is in charge of all things. So in order to fulfill this role, the prophet would be invited, as it were, into the divine council room. Think of the, the situation room in the White House where the, the counselees are, are brought together, where decisions are made. The prophet would be invited into the divine council room of the Almighty so they could get the inside scoop of what God was up to so that the people could see that God is in charge. God is working out all things according to the counsel of his will. So think of Moses after the Exodus. All these events have gone on that the people are wondering about. And so Moses is invited up into the summit of Mount Sinai to be in the presence of God so that he can hear God's plan for how the people are to live and how God is going to dwell among them. And then he comes down and he delivers that to the people as a prophet, letting them know what God is up to. Or think of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was thinking that he was just visiting God's earthly temple. And when he goes into God's earthly temple, he gets a window into the true heavenly temple. And he sees God seated on his throne, whose train of his robe fills the whole temple, and the foundations of the thresholds shook. And he hears, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is echoed in Revelation 4. And Isaiah is a prophet at a time when God's people are very confused. They're running away from God. They're rebelling against him. The nations are raging against them. And God says, Isaiah, here's what's going on. You're going to let the people know my plan for judgment and my plan for future hope and restoration. So John is going up into heaven, into the divine council room, so that he can let God's people know he is still in charge. He has all things under his control. Kids, think of it like this. Have you ever been to an airport and you're waiting for your plane? You're sitting at the airport terminal and you're looking out the window, waiting before you can board your plane. And there's tons of things going on. Planes are coming and going and bags are being thrown and tossed around and there's people with orange sticks everywhere. And it seems kind of like a chaotic mess. But imagine one of the airport employees comes to you and says, hey, would you like to see the control tower of this airport? And they bring you up and parents have your permission or they go with you. And you see in the control tower that there's someone who knows everything that's going on. They know what planes are coming at what time, what planes are leaving, where the bags go and all these things. You realize that in the control tower, this is not just random chaos in the airport. Sometimes it is. But generally speaking, there's someone who knows and is arranging things. And that's kind of what John is doing for us. He's helping us go into the throne room, into the control tower to see that all that we think might be chaotic is actually being ordered and arranged by God, that he's not lost control. And so the first thing that John sees, which helps us gain this perspective, is a piece of furniture of all things. Look at verse 2. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So the first thing that John's eyes are drawn to, that he draws our eyes to, is the throne. Twelve times in this chapter, the word throne shows up. Over 40 times in Revelation, the word throne shows up. The, the mounting of repetition with this term shows us this is one of the most important features in the book of Revelation. Now, interior designers talk about having a statement piece in your home. A statement piece is that, that piece that when guests walk in, their eyes are drawn to this thing, and it kind of sets the tone for the rest of your house. Well, the throne is the statement piece of God's heavenly throne room. And it's the item that your eyes are drawn to immediately and right away. And it's not only the statement piece, 
It's the central piece around which every other thing is arranged. So, so think of your living room right now. Your living room has some sort of arrangement, some, some central piece around which you arrange the furniture. So when you sit down, you see that thing. Probably a TV, maybe bookshelves, maybe a piano, maybe a, a fireplace. But there is some central piece. In God's heavenly house, everything is arranged around the throne. Everything finds its direction and significance from the throne. Look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 elders. Now jump down to verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning. Then look at verse 6. Before the throne was a sea of glass. And most importantly, if you look at verse 2, even God in Revelation 4 is described as the one seated on the throne. From, around, before, on the throne. Everything is described as in relation to and finding its significance from the throne. Why is John doing this? Well, by focusing our attention on the throne and showing us that everything is arranged around it, John wants us to understand that the throne of God is both the center and apex of reality. Everything in existence revolves around this throne, and there is nothing in existence above this throne. Why is this important for us? Well, we're we're fallen people who still have indwelling sin and temptations and struggles. We live in a fallen world, which means there is a constant competition for what should be the center of our lives. There's a constant ongoing conflict for that central thing around which you should orient your life. And like the churches that John has been writing to, we live in a culture that tempts us constantly towards some form of cosmic insurrection, that you should usurp that throne with something else. Something else should take its place. There's always this temptation to dethrone God and replace him with something else, whether it's pleasure or status or identity or possessions or self or career. On and on it could go. But John is helping the church see that all these other things that culture is tempting them to dethrone God with will never be able to take place of the one seated on the throne. Nothing is big enough, nothing is grand enough, nothing is glorious enough to have the right gravitational pull to arrange everything in our lives properly and in their right balance. And so this vision of the throne teaches us to say with the old hymn, the dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. They're facing temptation, and yet John says, know that this needs to be the center. This is where everything gets its significance, everything gets its proper arrangement from. So what in your life is competing with this throne for centrality for? Because it's not going to ever be able to replace the one seated on the throne. As we continue on our passage, John describes for us some of the characteristics of the one seated on the throne and the characteristics of his throne room. What is he like and what is his throne room like? Well, in verse 3, John attempts to describe the indescribable glory and beauty of the one seated on the throne. And before we get into these descriptions, I need to remind you of the nature of John's communication and revelation. There's always a question of, is it is it literal? Is it metaphor? Is it spiritual? And I don't know the best answer for that, except to say that John is doing his best as a prophet to attempt to describe to us realities that are almost beyond description. And the best metaphor I can think of is, imagine that one day you decided to visit the Amazon jungle, and you came across a primitive tribe 
that had never entered into modern technology. They, they, they hunt with sticks that they use with knives that they made themselves. They cook over fires. They have no electricity, no technology. And you say to them, hey, I've heard about you guys on the internet. And they ask you, what's the internet? How would you describe the internet to the primitive tribe in the Amazon jungle? I'm guessing you'd have quite a hard time describing it to them. In one sense, that's what John's doing for us. He's taking earthly real, or, or heavenly realities and borrowing the best earthly language he can to say, God is something like this. His throne room is something like this. And so here's what he says in verse 3 of Revelation 4. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So the best that John can do to describe the one seated on the throne is take, in their experience, the most precious, costly jewels that they know of that shine forth when when light refracts from them with the most beautiful combination of colors and say that God's very presence radiates and shines forth with the kind of jewels and images that are the envy of earthly kings. And that's just the outer glow of his glory. Think of these precious jewels. We would be hard-pressed to ever find jasper or carnelian or emerald in its most pure form. And even if we knew of a store that sold these things, they wouldn't even let us in because we would just be there to be window shopping. And yet, what we view as rare and costly and beautiful merely describes the outer glow of the radiating glory of God. That's what John's saying. Or another way to say it, John is saying that in heaven, seated on the throne, sits the one who is the fountainhead of all beauty. And every beauty we ever see on earth, every costly, precious thing we ever see on earth is merely a stream that flows from him. So the sunrise that illuminates the horizon on a beautiful, clear morning, or the sunset that paints the sky with a combination of brilliant colors, or the stars that dot the canvas of a night sky, they're all declaring to us in one form or another, if you think this is beautiful, wait till you see the source of this beauty. It's far beyond what we could ask or imagine. Well, John not only attempts to describe the indescribable beauty of the one on the throne, but he attempts to describe the awful majesty of the one on the throne. Now, I debated over this word awful because in our modern sense of using awful, we use it to describe things like cottage cheese or tomato juice. You know, it's awful, disgusting, it's unpleasant, which is appropriate for those things. But In the older English use of the term awful, it meant being filled with a sense of wonder and reverence at something that is inspiring. So think of standing before Niagara Falls and seeing the majesty of all those hundreds of thousands of gallons of water being dumped over the edge every single second. That fills you with awe. We're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking over how vast and deep and big it is. That's awful. It fills you with awe. That's what John is trying to describe, the awful majesty of the throne room. Look at verse 5 with me. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So he takes kind of three earthly metaphors, lightning, thunder, and fire, to describe the awful majesty of the throne room. Think of these. When a a real lightning storm dances across the sky, when you see that lightning kind of dart across the sky, back and forth and down, 
you watch in awe, but you also know that it's not good to stand under a very tall tree, right? Or when you hear a loud crack of thunder close by and you're swimming in a pool, you know that's amazing, but also you know to get out of the pool very fast. Or on a cool winter night, it's mesmerizing to sit near a big roaring fire and watch those flames kind of dance on the logs. But you know not to put your hands too close to that fire. All of these images are reminiscent of God's presence on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. John is kind of taking from their kind of historic experience. Remember when God was on Mount Sinai? What was that like? Well, that's even more magnified in his heavenly throne room. And he's reminding us of these, not just to say same God yesterday, today, and forever. But he's showing us that God is good and glorious. He's beyond description in beauty. But he is not safe and tame and domesticated. Right? Remember in uh, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe when they, they wonder about meeting a lion. It's like, well, if anyone can go before a lion and stand there without their knees knocking and their body trembling, they're, they're either braver than most or just plain stupid. That's what John is saying, that God is good, he's glorious but he's not a tame, domesticated, senile, benevolent grandfather in heaven. He is bigger than all that. And so we are to draw near to him, not casually and flippantly, but humbly and reverently. You, when you stand on near Niagara Falls, you know that this is wonderful and you want to be near it, but you, you also you know, you want to be careful. It's dangerous, but it's good. And so these images also teach us not just a humble reverence rather than a casual flippancy, but they teach us to have a confidence in the one seated on the throne. If this God of awe-inspiring majesty is for us, who can be against us? If the Lord is on my side, whom should I be afraid of? What can mere mortals do to me? Think, Think of all that they're dealing with. Their problems seem big, the threats seem huge, and yet they say, John is saying, your God is much bigger. Your God is far bigger than all the threats and temptations that you are facing. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, ironically, John moves directly from an image of power and force to an image of calm and peace. Look at verse six with me. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, here's where you realize that if you take all the language of Revelation and you try to take it and understand it in a very rigidly literalistic sense, you're going to start running into problems and have some issues. Because how is there a massive thunderstorm booming in verse 5, and then in verse 6, there's this undisturbed calm sea of glass? Now, I don't know if you've ever been near a lake or a river when there's a raging, booming thunderstorm. Usually the water doesn't just sit there peacefully calm and you see people kayaking or paddleboarding. That doesn't happen. But what John is trying to show is that in God, in his throne room, there are these convergences of diversely excellent things that somehow exist together in perfect harmony. There is majesty and power and awe, and yet there's this calm and peace and sereneness at the same time in heaven. So John is trying to show us that God, on the throne, both has unrivaled majestic power and yet an undisturbed, perfect calm and peace about him that nothing can alter or change. 
We might be disturbed and upset by things that go on, and yet God exists in a perfect state of calm and peace. He is never anxious. He doesn't fret. He doesn't lose sleep. There's a perfect calm in the throne room of heaven. And this would have been particularly meaningful to the original readers because in the ancient world, the sea, before kind of, you know, transportation had really got going, the sea was viewed as this untamable chaotic force that could swallow sailors and ships whole. And so they, they viewed it with, with great trepidation and saw it as, as almost um, a monster. They even like kind of personified it as a monster in their myths, you know, the Leviathan as the sea that swallows up ships and sailors. And then the raging sea became a metaphor for when life in this world seems out of control. So think of Psalm 46, when the sea rages and the waters foam and roar. That's a metaphor of life when it seems out of control. And yet what they're seeing here in heaven is that which on earth looks chaotic and out of control is actually perfectly calm and at rest in heaven. The sea is an undisturbed crystal glass beneath the throne of God. So what we've seen through John is that the one seated on the throne is of indescribable beauty. His glory radiates with an unrivaled beauty and preciousness. His throne room thunders with an awful majesty that overwhelms with a sense of reverence. And yet there's an undisturbable peace that fills the throne room with a holy calm. So what is John doing for us? Well, by showing us the throne that is above every throne, John helps us see from a new vantage point that should fill us with a sense of comfort and assurance and peace. Because life, it's chaotic. It can seem out of control. There's circumstances that we are not in charge of that we wonder what's it going to be like tomorrow or the day after that. And yet John says, look at the one on the throne. So the original audience, who he's just wrote to, who's facing all the problems they're facing with, would be tempted to discouragement, to despair, to doubt. They're thinking to John, you know, what about the threat of persecution from a political power as big as Rome? And John's saying, do not fear. God is still on his throne. They're thinking, what about the threat of the persecution coming from an anti-Christian culture, which is against all of our agendas, which controls the economic forces of society, the trade guilds? John's saying, do not fear. God is still on his throne. Well, in what ways do we need to hear the same perspective adjustment from this new vantage point? There, there are many things that cause us worry and anxiety. What about inflation or recession or election? I mean, every, every time there's an election, I, I, I think I've heard this, every, every single election I've, I've remembered, this is the most important election of our lifetime. It's kind of becoming an old, tired phrase. And, and it's almost coming from the sense that we think that the throne, which controls all of the thrones, resides in Washington. You won't find it there. It's just a house made of wood and stone and painted white. That's all it is. Or what about declining culture? Or what about all the divisions in our culture? What about, what about? And John's saying, do not fear. God is still on his throne. He has not abdicated it for one moment, for one second. It is still occupied by him. His sovereignty is still incontestable. His dominion is still everlasting. His wisdom is still inscrutable. And his promises are still reliable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so in all of our concern and our anxiety, John is saying to us in Revelation 4, be still and know that God is still on his throne. Well, would you please turn with me to page 8 in your worship bulletin as we conclude this message 
just scratching the surface of Revelation 4, we'll be back in here next week, with a responsive conclusion from Revelation 22. You can see that on the bottom of page 8. I'll read the words in italics. Would you please respond corporately with the words 